Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. Hi everybody! Hi, Dr. Nick. Yes, hello everybody. It's Dr. Nick here again. And welcome to the first Dr. Nick radiotherapy show for 2023. And I'm delighted today to be joined once again in the studio by our regular panellists. We've got Misdiagnosis, Prudence Deer and Dr. Band. Now, Misdiagnosis, (laughs) rumour has it that you're a busy junior doctor. (laughs) But I also understand that you've recently returned from New Zealand. Yes, that's right. I uh, had the pleasure of attending a friend's wedding in Auckland and took the opportunity to also travel to the South Island I've never been to before, um, get in a camper van and uh, make my long-suffering fiancé do all the driving. That's fantastic. And was New Zealand as beautiful as we always believe New Zealand is? I haven't been there for years. It was absolutely breathtaking. Flying into Queenstown is such an experience. And we spent the entire time, well, I spent the entire time going, oh, my goodness, Sam and Frodo, they must have had such a tough... I mean, look at those mountains. There's so much to cover. There's glaciers. There's snow. There's there's something for everyone in Queenstown. It was absolutely fantastic. And it was actually quite warm. I sort of was prepared for really cold conditions down in Queenstown. Town, but um, most of the time we're in shorts and a t-shirt. Well, jolly decent of you to make time to come here into the studio. <laughs> well, I booked my flight specifically so I could get back on air. <laughs> and, and Prudence, dear, welcome back to you. Morning, it's Nick. lovely to see you again. Um, just tell us, you've got a special guest coming in the second half of the show, haven't you? I have. Um, uh, yes, we're going to have a bit of a chat with uh, Joe Ball, who's the uh, CEO of Switchboard Victoria, and we're going to talk about some um, recent health funding. Um, offerings coming from the Commonwealth Government. So yes, just tell us briefly about that. So, um... oh, There was an announcement at the very beginning of March um, by uh, Minister Butler and a few others from the, the current government to um, pledge uh, $26 million to um, health research for LGBTIQA plus communities Excellent. and people. So one of the things I, I would love to know, and maybe Joe can answer this question first, but whenever we hear these announcements about governments pledging money, where do they get the figure from? Now, where, where, where do they get 26 million as opposed to 21? Or, I well, I suspect various. I mean, it's, there's a lot of kind of negotiation that goes on prior to any of these, doesn't it? Usually somebody comes along and says, actually, I want $260 million. And if you're lucky, you know, we'll get 26. So let's <laughs> pitch, it's called, isn't it? Um, and joining us in a minute will be Dr. Band, who's one of our other regular panellists. Um, I'm looking forward to having him uh, joining us in the studio. The door creaks open. Oh, Dr. Band. Coffee, coffee in hand, looking very relaxed. Nice He's going to throw on his headphones and say good morning to all the radiotherapy listeners. Good, good morning. morning. <laughs> Apologies for being late. Happy New Year, everyone. Great right. to be back. I'm not sure if um, getting coffee counts as being late in Melbourne, does it? <laughs> no, maybe, possibly not. Yeah. Possibly not, yeah. Um, it's part of it. It's decaf anyway. I'm off coffee. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, we might have to ask you about that in a minute. Um, but just while you gather your thoughts on your coffee, just uh, tell us, you've done a, an interview pre-recorded for us, uh, and just tell us what that's going to be about. Yeah, we were really lucky to have uh, Kimberly Parker, who's a communications officer for the Hinari Project from the World Health Organization. So briefly, the Hinari Project has been going for more than 20 years. And the aims are to uh, allow 
researchers behind paywalls, um, as we've discussed at our last show with the BMJ, um, to be propagated in uh, the developing world, or as they call it, the South. And um, <laughs> the it, South. Yeah, so, the, so Australia would be considered the North, even though um, our geographical location. And, uh, yeah, allowing all of these resources to be used in countries like Nepal and um, East Africa to be um, to better um, help the peoples of those countries. Fantastic. Well, looking forward to that very much. Now, one of my favourite parts of the show... This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. Yes, it's the dog park shout-out here at Triple R. We love all animals, our bark stacks and models. That you don't see many in the park. You those, do you? So the dog park shout-out is, now I've also been away sunning myself. My dogs are in kennels. So I haven't been in the dog park, but Prudence, do you have, well, haven't you? Well, I have. I, actually, mine's in the kennels as well, because we're going away tonight. So that's, uh, she's nicely ensconced in there. But I was, um, I was out and about on Friday night in Dalesford, actually, which is when uh, Chill Out is on. There's a big festival going on there. The place is packed. And I was sitting and, you know, just quietly minding myself on a, in a street cafe. And these two beautiful dogs walked past, and I was absolutely mesmerised by them. So we had to engage the owners, as one does, in conversation. As you do with dogs. Yeah, we do. Yeah, so, talking to the dogs first, so Milton and Mavis. Milton is a gorgeous schnauzer, and Mavis is a West, Westy, West Highland Terrier, and they're kind of black and white, so Milton's black and Mavis is white, um, and Milton is the soppiest dog. Uh, like he sat on my lap, and he's one of those that leans into you and like, puts his head on your shoulder. I love it's a leaning dog. Yeah. So um, Peter and Aaron have the, um, the pleasure of owning these two beautiful animals. Oh, I, I wished I was able to have a dog park shout out because we went to the AMP, the Agriculture and Something or Other show in um, down on the South Island just near Queenstown and we got to see the sheepdogs oh. rounding up the sheep. But we didn't get to pat them or they didn't come and sit on our laps, but they did do a wonderful job of rounding up the sheep. Oh, well, that, well that's gorgeous. So shout out for Mavis and who was it, Mavis? And Milton. Milton and Mavis and their owners, Peter and Aaron, who oh. are still probably living it up right now in, in the, the parade at, uh, in Dalesford at Chill Out. Fantastic. How lovely. Now it's time for some news. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. Misdiagnosis, um, International Women's Day this week. What have you got for us in the news? Yes, International Women's Day was celebrated on Wednesday the 8th Mm -hmm. of March, as it has been every year since about 1914. And I was wondering, Dr Nick, did you know what the theme of International Women's Day was this year? I am going to be honest and say no. So um, the UN do theme their International Women's Day each year. Last year, for example, was uh, women in climate activism um, and adaptation and sort of climate change work and policy. This year, the theme was digital. 
uh, getting women more involved in the digital space. Okay. Um, so sort of the science and the STEM sort of things, the science and technology, engineering, mathematics. Um, and the their tagline was innovation and technology for gender equity. And it was very interesting. I was reading through some of their press releases and the reasons. So they choose they choose something like this every year um, just to have a theme to you know, champion mm-hmm. something and bring to light other research. And it was very interesting, some of the press releases they put out, you know, things like there was this very large global analysis of over it's about 133 different artificial intelligence systems across many different industries and what they found when looking at these artificial intelligence systems was that at least 44% of them if not more demonstrated gender bias in the technology itself now this when i sort of read this figure i sort of thought oh you know does that mean that they're using maybe male voices or maybe the voice recognition is different or they're not using different accents but when you actually delve a bit deeper into the data and you go to the study that this was based on Essentially, what it showed was that a lot of things like credit card companies across the world, when you input data, so you put your credit score, your debt, your income, women will have a significantly lower credit limit than men. And this was across sort of over 133 different industries. And it's the AI itself that is recognising essentially using um, computer learning. But the computer learning is based on the technology, the uh, information we have out there, which is in itself biased. Yes, absolutely, isn't it totally biased? And that's, it's interesting how that you know so many sorts of things that we currently rely on um, have those kind of innate biases, whether it's about gender or whether it's about cultural backgrounds and all those sorts of things. And I guess look in our kind of entire health world, so much of uh, evidence base is, you know, around clinical trials and other things like that, that so often adult males are the subjects, aren't they? Yep, and even in animal studies, a lot of the female (laughs) animals are excluded. And and this is what this uh, this sort of the data is going into, that even the data itself is biased. And we've only got something like, you know, the low 20% of women working in these areas. So you've got 80% of people in these areas who are male or male identifying, and they're often choosing data points that they think are relevant, but it's actually not representative Mm. of the whole community. So I thought it was a very interesting um, theme to have for International Women's Day, the digital, um, and, yeah, something to keep in the back of our minds. And one of the things that I've seen criticism about in the media is that um, International Women's Day has been so corporatised. I don't know if either of you have a comment about that from your experience. Uh, Look, so many things get corporatised now. If you've got a good cause, and often, you know, we do need to look around for funding and support and so on, because, you know, we live in a world where money actually talks. Mm -hmm. Um, But that said, I mean, I think so many sorts of... uh, uh, what sort of social causes have ended up kind of being sold out to to the corporates? Yeah, okay. yeah, and one day a year that you get to you know put a nice Instagram post or Twitter post up about how you're supporting these communities, yeah. Yeah. and for the rest of the year, not a lot. Right. Mm, all right, well, Very thank, much of an year. thank you, Miss Diagnosis. Fascinating stuff. Now, coming up shortly will be our first interview, which will focus on something called the Hinari Program. So very opposite that we were just talking about data and research. Um, because this is a WHO initiative to make medical research, which is often buried in expensive and inaccessible journals, freely available to low- and middle-income countries. So I'm really looking forward to hearing that interview, and that'll be coming up right after this. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. 
To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website, rrr.org.au. Essential to health is scholarship. This is where we pose questions, conduct ethical research and ideally propagate our findings to the world in order to improve the health of all people. As with everything, economic reality means that often research is published in journals behind significant paywalls and language barriers. These barriers often make it difficult for the propagation step of research to find the people of the developing world. Over 20 years ago, the World Health Organization developed a project to improve this access. Its name is Hinari. My name is Dr. Band, and this morning on Radiotherapy, I'm excited to have, direct from Geneva, Switzerland, the program manager and the, of the Hinari project from the World Health Organization, Kimberly Parker. Welcome, Kimberly. I'm so happy to join you, not least because we've had Australian ties practically from the beginning of the Hinari program. We've got a publisher partner, CSIRO, and we've got Australian volunteers helping us with training and technology support. Fantastic. Great to hear that we got in the ground level. Could you um, just briefly discuss um, how the Hinari project came about and what was the genesis? Okay. Well, first of all, Hinari is part of a larger program called Research for Life, which is a partnership. And as you said, we're providing access to hundreds of thousands of online research and professional publications in more than 100 lower income countries. How it came about was that WHO had a consultation meeting with researchers from lower income countries in late 2000. And one of the questions asked there was, what do you need in the area of information? The unanimous answer to that question was access to unaffordable medical journal subscriptions. So that was a mandate. And it was the mandate that my predecessor in the WHO library, Barbara Aronson, needed to reach out to the publisher community and propose an initiative to address the need. It was a little bit surprising, but maybe not, that the publisher community responded immediately. And they responded generously. And our first publisher coordinator, Morris Long, describes that time as pushing on an open door, which is kind of satisfying. By July 2001, Hanari was formally launched, and by January 2002, the first institutions were signed up and using, and we've now got 11,000 institutions signed up, and hundreds of thousands of publications, as I mentioned earlier. Amazing. Why do you think this project is so important? When Hanari got started, my predecessor did a very simple survey of the earliest institutions to sign up. And those institutions reported an average of three journal subscriptions in their libraries. Now, imagine if one of those journals was on surgery topics, but you're a radiologist. (laughs) Medicine and health are too diverse for one or two journals really to be barely more than anything. So now there's access to 200,000 publications across all disciplines, and we also train on how to find the information needed, whether that's for setting health policy or conducting research or teaching the next generation of students or much more. And we've had tens of thousands of learners following our online courses. Amazing. I love the analogy of pushing on an open door. I I hope that we could do some research and find out the the keys um, in all things in uh, in medicine and health that we can just push on some more open doors um, 
that are, that exist around the world. Um, yeah. How has it been? Has this process um, been practically used? Like you, you spoke about how you, you've expanded it a lot, but do you know of any um, projects that have directly resulted from the research um, access that you've granted to the developing world? We actually have dozens of user stories, and they're always so fascinating. Um, one that is my personal favorite is we have a, a neurosurgeon in Nepal who was dealing with a novel emergency case, and he actually checked Hanari before he went into the surgical theater to make sure that he wasn't going to be following the, the appropriate procedure for this particular case. We've had a, a physiotherapist in Ethiopia using Hanari to find better ways to treat his patients, a researcher in Zimbabwe who's tackling the burden of diabetes there. I could go on and on <laughs> with hundreds of thousands of users. It is an endless list of stories. So it's not only just inspiring people in the developing world to conduct research and use it for the peoples there, it's actually guiding their practice as well. Absolutely. It's also about setting policy with the, the governments, um, needing the appropriate evidence in which to say this is the correct health policy to be setting. Are there political barriers behind um, letting go of all of these paywalls in, in some of these countries? Because it's sort of an, a free access to, in, in some form, media. Yeah, it is. Um, if you think about it, Historically, medical journals and books have always had a price tag, just like the newspapers and magazines that people subscribe to have a price tag. That's shifting now. You can get to news websites for free, and the funding is coming from other sources to support the news. And that's also happening in the medical literature and medical publication field. But we're still in a transition, and Hanari's there to make sure that the health publications are made available freely for the lower-income countries. Yes, some of the publishers are giving up a little bit of revenue, but frankly, they're penetrating to parts of the world where their content would never have been available before. So they're really not giving up that much subscription revenue. And it's creating this huge benefit. Amazing. Uh, has this project changed the world of journals uh, at all? Or are they sort of still continuing on but um, contributing to your program? It's kind of hard to know how much impact Hanari and Research for Life have had on what journals are or how they operate, because there's been a lot of other massive changes in the research publishing world over the 20 years. I can say that what we've seen is a significant increase in authorship from our lower income country institutions, which is making the global literature truly global. We also hear a lot from our publisher partners that they are focusing on diversity, equity, and inclusion on their editorial boards and peer review communities and seeking people for those roles from our developing country institutions. We also see a significant growth in the journals published in our eligible countries. So there's a lot that's changing, and it's kind of exciting to watch. It sure is. And I understand that you have you publish or propagate um, publications in 45 different languages. Is some of these um, translated from English or Central European languages to developing world countries, or is that 
research that's spawned out from those um, those countries? Actually, very few, if any, of the journals that we um, highlight in our portal are ones that are translated from journals that are published in English or other European languages. So when we say that we've got journals with 45 plus languages, they're actually journals that were originally published in those languages. Okay. And they're highlighting the research coming from the countries where we work, which is also exciting. I remember a surgeon once told me um, that in Germany, there were lots of um, an orthopedic registrar and a lot of the research in orthopedics was done in German for quite a long period of time. And it took maybe 10 to 25 years before the research went from Germany. This was sort of in the early um, 20th century before it reached the England and then the, then the Americas. Has any research from the developing world actually reached out um, into the Western world through this connection? Well, I can't speak specifically to that, but I do know that a lot of the journals that are published in our eligible country communities are being indexed by databases that are carrying journals from all over the world. So the visibility is definitely growing. Excellent. What are the plans for expansion or what's on the horizon for the Hinari project? Well, Hinari, along with the rest of Research for Life, is at a pivot point. We've been successful in providing this access to the medical literature for more than 20 years. And our current strategy is to engage our user community in more of the decision-making and direction setting. We're focusing beyond that access to consider the whole researcher publishing life cycle, including questions of preparing research for publication. Um, we're beginning also to address the issue of fairness in authorship with, for example, we've written a good practices recommendation for publishers on waiving author fees when authors are charged fees to publish. So that's a whole new direction for us and it's kind of exciting. Do you think that there's, we hear a lot about outreach um, nowadays, but do you think there's an opportunity to have a sort of a research outreach into, um, into, develop, into the developing world? Can you say what you mean by research outreach? I, I suppose a lot of the huge institutions of research are centred in the Western world, so universities or research collectives in United States and UK and Europe. And the it, one one of the most important parts of research is it's conducted correctly, so the questions are correct, the, the data is collected correctly. And maybe some of this research knowledge can be propagated into um, the developing world such that they can um, conduct um, high standard research in those countries as well. Yeah, your, pre your question kind of presumes that there is a need for developing research skills in some of our countries. And I, I, I won't say that that's not the case. But there are huge bodies of knowledge and skills already in many of our institutions. And it's important not to sort of ignore that that already exists. We are 
definitely seeing more South-South collaboration on research, meaning institutions and in, say, you know, Tanzania working with institutions in Bhutan to tackle a research question together. There's also what's known as triangular um, research, which is an institution in, say, the global north, Western Europe, U.S., Australia, et cetera, with a couple of institutions in the south, all collaborating on an equal basis. Um, but I've also been hearing more recently, as I think everyone has, about trying to avoid what's known as helicopter research, where an institution from the north comes in, lands in a country, says, you're a wonderful site for us to conduct our research, does their research, pulls out the data and goes away, and doesn't really engage much with the researchers who are there on the ground, who probably know more about the topic. Yeah, <laughs> very interesting. Um, how could um, the everyday person in Australia be involved in this, uh, in this project in advocacy or donations? Well, first and foremost, anyone can be involved by talking about Hanari and Research for Life and your interactions with friends and colleagues from lower-income countries. I'm constantly amazed when I hear from someone who could have been using Hanari for years and is only just becoming aware that it exists. Um, that's always disheartening. Uh, as for donating, well, we've accomplished a lot through volunteers and in-kind contributions, but there's so much more we could do. And donations are welcome. There's a Friends of Research for Life organization that supports our work. And they have a number of projects listed on their website that contributions can support. My personal favorite, because it's the one I'm most closely involved in, is a project called Country Connectors, which is supporting work in some of our countries for greater impact of what we're doing. They raise awareness about Research for Life and Hanari on the ground. And they build communities of information users through local networks and partnerships. Fantastic. Um, and could you just give us the website details for that project? Sure. It's Friends of Research for Life. Um, and it helps if you actually use the number four instead of the word four. But even if you type Friends of Research for Life all spelled out, it will find it on the web. Okay, thanks so much, um, Kimberly, for your time this morning. Really enlightening to hear about your work and um, the Who's and Research um, for Life's Hinari project. We think it's a fantastic project and uh, we look forward to seeing it propagate in the next 25, 50 and 100 years. Thanks for your time, Kimberly. Thank you so much. That was Kimberly Parker talking to our resident panelist, Dr. Band. That, that was fascinating, Dr. Band. Yeah, it's a, such a great project. And uh, it, because we live in the developed world, sometimes we don't get access to it. But I think it's really important, given our geographical location mm. in the world, that we propagate it um, into the Pacific Rim. Yeah. What was your thinking, Ms. Diagnosis? Uh, I think one of the key things I took away from that was this idea that the project has helped increase the authorship from the lower-income countries themselves. Mm -hmm. That What Kimberley was talking about, which I think is so 
um, so important to keep in mind is this idea of sort of helicopter research where Western countries will come into an area, yes. lower socioeconomic area, and then they will sort of extract the data. They'll take it back to their institution. They'll say, well, we're, you know, university X and we know how to deal with this, as opposed to letting these areas sort of, I mean, these the researchers on the ground, they know what's happening mm-hmm. in their regions. And she was talking about this wonderful sort of South to South collaboration, I think is what she called it, where countries um, sort of, you know, the developing countries are collaborating between each other, not through a sort of large institution to answer questions that realistically, a lot of the Western countries have got no idea how to answer these questions or, or go about thinking about how to yes. solve them. Yeah, really nice point. I, I can see, Prudence, that you've got your sort of grumpy face on. I've got my on. grumpy face on. Yeah, well, I think I have, probably because it's like, you know, knowledge is, is power, isn't it? It's so important that in science and medicine, you know, journals are such an important source of information and this is stuff that should be shared. And I, the authors don't get paid for this. So why why are they so expensive? Why are journals so expensive in the first place? There you go. <laughs> oh, Prince, I'm Come very, on, let's uh, get that information out there. We'd save more lives. Very good grump to end that segment. Well done. <laughs> You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Prudence, dear, you've got a special guest in the studio. I have. I'm delighted that we've got uh, someone who's come to join us in our beautiful studio on Wurundjeri country here today. Um, Joe Ball is the uh, Chief Executive Officer of Switchboard Victoria and uh, a very important and long-standing organisation. And we're going to have a little bit of a chat about Commonwealth funding for health and well-being amongst LGBTIQA plus communities. Hi, Joe. Welcome to the studio. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you here. So perhaps we could just start off. Can you give us a quick bit of background on Switchboard Victoria? What do you do? How do you do it? Yeah, so Switchboard is, this is my favourite topic. Of course. Say. <laughs> but um, uh, since 1991, uh, that's, Switchboard was founded in 1991 out of the AIDS pandemic. Um, and, it, and as the name suggests, we started out as a helpline inspired by the London Gay and Lesbian Switchboard. Uh, Today, it was called Gay and Lesbian Switchboard. Today, it is just called Switchboard to recognise the full extent of our LGBTIQA plus communities. Today, we run two seven-day-a-week helplines. The original one that we run in partnership with other state-based helplines nationally called QLife, and we run our own statewide Suicide Prevention, Mental Health and Family Violence Prevention Helpline, Rainbow Mm -hmm. Door. We also run a dedicated national suicide prevention program. We run an older people's visiting program called Out and About. And we run an anti-racism program, which is looking at inclusion for parts of our community that identifies queer, trans, intersex people of colour. Right. That's quite a lot. For it, actually, what is a long probably ele- a smallish organisation, really, isn't it? Yeah, it was a long elevator ride, isn't it, of yeah. a pitch. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but no, it's great. I think that kind of gives us a bit of... For people who may not be acquainted with uh, with what, uh, what Switchboard has been doing for over 30 years, which is amazing. Um, so, uh, beginning of this month, big announcement from the Commonwealth Government around funding for initiatives around LGBTI health. Um, so I guess the first question, well, maybe we'd better say, what is what was the announcement? What did they say? Yeah, so on the 1st of March, which was at the uh, World Pride Human Rights Conference, mm-hmm. Minister Mark Butler and Assist- Assistant Minister Jed Carney announced live at the event uh, that they're going to have a $26 million investment in research 
and a 10-year national plan mm-hmm. to address the mental health and suicide prevention needs of the LGBTIQA plus community. So $26 million for research, that is the single biggest one-off announcement of any federal government in LGBTIQA plus money in Australian history. So that's it was a, a big thing to announce, but it also tells you a little bit about what wasn't happening in the 10 years prior. So it was a big announcement. It was also a moment, I think, when I reflect on it as a turning point right. and as much a symbolic moment of commitment as well as a practical moment mm. of commitment. Okay. And, and having it being a long term, 10 years is quite significant. Now, is the 26 million, that's for, for research, the 10-year plan, is that being funded in some other way? They previously announced that. that it was a, an Albanese Labor Party government uh, election promise mm-hmm. and they funded two peak bodies to deliver on it and consult with the community, and that was LGBTI Health Australia and the AIDS Federation, AFAO, are going to run consultations with our community. So they they have been funded half a million dollars each to do that consultation, which Mm -hmm. will have to be quite intensive. So that's good that that is also funded. Yeah, okay. And, I mean, consultation is something that is really important. And I suppose I was just trying to think a bit earlier about numbers, you know, just to get a sort of context of, like, the size, the scale of the sort of health issues that we mm. might be facing. And I was just looking at the Hepburn, the Hepburn Shire Council webpage, which, of course, is, you know, centred in Dalesford, and that's where Chill Out's happening. So mm. it's a big pride festival over there. But they were pointing out that, for example, I think, about 17% of the permanent population of Dalesford are in same-sex relationships. Yep. So LGBTI, you know, individuals, the size of the community is quite substantial, would you say? Oh, would you agree with that? Look, I think I mean, <laughs> I mean, Dalesford is, is, is overrepresented. Yes, um, um, it's, a, it's a haven, uh, I would say, for our community, a regional haven. But I, I do think the numbers are quite high when you look at the full alphabet of LGBTIQA+, mm, and who those people make up. But then you need to add into there all the people who love and support us and are concerned mm. about our mental health and mm. wellbeing. So you add parents to that, rainbow families, children of, mm. you know, uh, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, intersex people, it's actually an issue that affects a huge amount of people yeah. in our population and, and who are genuinely concerned about it. I would say we used to have this conservative estimate of 10%. Mm. We've heard amongst young people that it's as high as 40% right. of the population yeah. who are identifying. And I think that speaks to a new generation. You know, this is under 18, mm. self-identified. I think it, it, it shows... You know, the length and breadth and um, and probably some of our community, but also the changes of acceptance. Sure. Yeah, I mean, it's, that's right. There, there is a greater sort of a, a opportunity to be open about your identity now, perhaps, and, and less shaming and less stigma to some degree, perhaps, over time. And that people can be, you know, stating things. You know, I, I think there's, you know, a lot of work to be done for, around certain letters in our alphabet. One of them is the bisexual community and people feeling like they can say that they're bisexual and access LGBTIQA mm. plus services and participate in our events. Obviously, we've got work to do, but I think that is changing. Mm. On one hand, we still call it the gay and lesbian Mardi Gras um, as yep. one example, um, which only takes in the first two letters. But what you do see at this gay and lesbian Mardi Gras is a huge contingent right at the front yeah. that is of bisexual people. Absolutely. So, and a huge trans con- contingents. Yeah. And so I think there's, there's, uh, 
spaces to go, but I think from the grassroots there's a lot of mm. already changes already happened. Yeah. So that's, that's all very encouraging. Mm. But so there has to be a but here, which is the health and well-being of LGBTIQA plus people isn't as good as the more general population, the average. So what's going on there? What, what, sort of, what are the issues? Yeah, we, as a single cohort in the Australian community, we have the highest rates of suicide mm-hmm. and that's most pointed at the trans and gender diverse yeah. communities. So half of all transgender people have reported in, nationals, in a national study that in the last 12 months before that study, uh, they had had thoughts of suicide. Yeah. And then half of all transgender people are telling us that throughout their lifetime they've made an attempt. Like half, one in two, that's people... And that's in, massively higher than the whatever we call the national average or that's something, That's right. Isn't it? Yeah. And then we're looking at other... And, and that's just within... That's at the pointed end, but across the whole alphabet, we are still overrepresented in suicide. Yeah. Then around other health indicators, smoking, alcohol and other drugs, we are overrepresented. I mean, a, a, mm-hmm. a causation of discrimination is that people do turn to other types of activities, alcohol and other drugs as one response. Yeah. For example, the single highest group in our community in the alphabet who smoke is bisexual women right so are they are there sort of like campaigns then and which about education health education health promotion that could be that are being directed oh um (laughs) uh Look, I, I think not enough. So what, yeah. my, my comment to encapsulate this whole thing is that we have some of the, the most amount of rights we've ever had um, in, in our own lifetimes and across, uh, across generations, but we still have some of the poorer mental health, yeah. which means that what we have been doing, an intergenerational trauma and people who've lived through trauma in their own lifetime, is not resolved. Um, and the, some of the responses we're having, the health responses, whether they're mental health or physical health, those responses are not working. Right, yeah. And that was something that... Sorry, thanks very much. That was something that I wanted to... um, uh, Sorry, to to quote you back to yourself, but uh, in one of the press releases you said this is not because of who we are as people but how we've been treated across our lifetime. And I I just was wondering if you could speak to that a little bit because I think often as practitioners we hear this data, we see these statistics Mm. and we think or one might think that there is something intrinsic in this that makes you a higher risk group. But it's not about that at all. I was wondering if you could speak to that. Yeah, I mean, I think we need to think of the very recent history. So uh, most people in our community have received discrimination and some of it is very profound. An example is that we didn't decriminalise homosexuality nationally until 1996. And I think that sometimes is glossed over. And the other thing is we didn't have marriage equality until 2017. So actually... Equality under the law is very recent. And I remember in my own lifetime, I grew up in Queensland. It took, I, was, I was 10 years old uh, when they decriminalised homosexuality. I went to an Anglican school where there was certainly way past, discrim- way, way past de- decriminalisation, a lot of conversation in my own school about sin and homosexuality being wrong. And unfortunately, these conversations are still happening in schools Um, in a whole range of schools and people are fighting for the right to still have these conversations. So I guess what I'm trying to say is that uh, we've come a long way and we are robust and resilient and inspiring as a community, but we are also facing unnecessary targeted discrimination and oppression and that 
you know, we still need to fight against that. Um, I'm fascinated by the amount of money that's just been announced, mm. and this might sound a slightly daft question, but where does 26 million come from? Is that did you say that's the exact amount we could do to help us, or is that not enough? I mean, where does this sit, and where do we get those sorts of sums from? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that we've been advocating for a long time as a community, not not just me, but, you know, me and peak bodies and arguing for that we need more data and more evidence-based research to address these needs that I've that we've been talking mm-hmm. about is that we don't have all the answers and there has been an under-investment in our in our lives um, and in health responses to our lives. So, I mean, 26 million, anyone who works in research knows that that is not heaps of money. It, it sounds like staggering. And I always have to hold this place of it's incredible, but if you do hold it up against other kind of research and you think about how much research takes in a university and the ambitious goal they've set out to do... Uh, so they, they've set out to do four main streams of through the research, and one is a focus on regional, remote and rural areas. Mm-hmm. The other is... LGBTIQA plus people who are experiencing intersectional disadvantage, transgender and gender diverse children, adolescents and young adults, and people living with intersex variation. So that's they're a, there for... So, a huge, and that's, huge number of areas to try and cover with what actually... As you, and that was, I guess, my point. 26 million sounds like a, a lot of money, but it's a drop in the ocean when you're trying to look at this enormous range of areas. Yeah, it has to be a start... That's how we have to think about it. And we have to, you know, make these investments need to be over time and, and not one off. So that's sometimes why I like to think about this announcement as symbolic as well as practical, because I think that it's not enough to say that it's uh, going to be. It, it, there's a symbolic nature to it because it's a beginning, but it, it, it needs. It's symbolic because we don't know what's going to come next and we haven't had a guarantee of further investment but yet. But it highlights the needs at least being recognised to some degree. And I mean, you know, you have emphasised that the mental health is a, is a you know major issues for people throughout these communities. Um, I mean, from what I see as a mental health professional, and you know, from what I speak to other people, I mean, one of the big issues is there are not enough mental health workers to provide the support to the number of people. The wait lists are huge, mm. and for LGBT. BDIQA plus people, I guess, also finding practitioners with a good knowledge um, and, you know, have who have the right kind mm-hmm. of attitudes to work with our clients is very difficult. And that's even more emphasised by regional areas where there very often are no practitioners at all. Um, so, yes, you know, great, let's have some research over the next 10 years. But, you know, what, what do we need to be doing as well to increase accessibility, I guess, to, to those people who need help now? I think that's why we've got to think about the 10-year plan and why that's equally as important Mm. as the announcement. I think also we need to have LGBTIQA plus issues at the roundtables of of all issues, really, Mm. because simply because we're overrepresented in poor mental health, but also uh, because we make up a significant part of the population. Mm. You know, the Albanese government had a job summit, you know, when they started to recognise... The, the gaps in a whole range of industries, there wasn't an LGBTIQA plus rep at the job summit, mm-hmm. as an example. And I think that, you know, we've got to start pushing for the government to kind of see our issues as not siloed, but across 
all issues. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that's sort of one way to think about it. And I do think workforce is a is a big challenge and something I would like the advisory group to tackle yeah. is how do we build. Uh, GP front, you know, uh, GPs, hospital staff, frontline workers, nurses, etc. Capability mm. to be able to respond to our work, and of course, you know, psychologists, psychiatrists, etc. The whole industry. Mm. So I think it's about um, getting people, more people in our community to take on these kind of jobs. You know, through mm. empowering them. But I also think it's about you know educating those who are sitting in those jobs right now. Yeah. Oh, well, obviously, that's right. Education is so important. And I'm just wondering there, um, you know, you mentioned uh, right at the beginning, like consultation. Mm. And, you know, you've been just speaking there about the target sort of areas, including intersectionality. How do we ensure we give voice to as many people as possible? I mean, we, they're plenty, you know, like many groups, I suppose, you know, there's some, there's some loud voices. But what about making sure that other people, you know, we do get a good cross-section of needs identified? How is that going to be done? I think this is a really – this is going to be the future channel challenge of the advisory group and the consultation process about – because we're going to need the right people in the room in the advisory group and that – and, you know, what is the right people is always up for debate. Mm. For me, the right people in the room need to be people who um, are interested in evidence-based responses – are listening to the community, are accountable to the community, um, are engaged with the broader consultation yeah. process and people who are not pushing their own vested interests. You know, and, and I think yeah. that the terms of reference of the advisory group is going to have to tackle that because, for example, if someone's sitting there from an organisation, they might have a great voice, but their role is not there to say, therefore fund my mm-hmm. organisation, we've got to go back to what is the community asking us yes, to do absolutely. because this needs to be new and greater responses as well as funding ongoing work that's already mm-hmm. happening. So that's going to be a massive challenge and I think that, uh, you know, I feel like some of the role that I want to play is arguing for that inclusive leadership yeah. that listens. Um, I think that... And I really think some of the responses need to bring a poverty lens I think Absolutely. in LGBTIQA plus communities, we sometimes can be quite bad at talking about poverty um, mm. for a range of reasons. But, for example, at Switchboard, the, the people that we talk to and some of the underlying issues they speak to on our helpline is economic instability, mm. is poverty, people on Centrelink, people in profound debt, transgender people accessing their super early in order to have surgeries, you know, uh, uh, transgender surgeries not being on Medicare. You know, I think we need to bring a poverty lens to, say, not just raise up people who are, you know, of the middle class in our community, but looking to those who are most disadvantaged as well. So I think that's a challenge. But one, yes. one, one we need to be up yeah. for. And I think, therefore, we've got to be up to it and recognise it because, again, it's a, it's a bit like, well, you know, you can put out requests for people to get involved mm. in, in reference groups or consultations, but if you just do it on the internet or the web and somebody hasn't got access, they're never going to hear about these things or their lives are perhaps going to be too busy um, to, for them to be able to participate. Mm. So we need to find ways to make sure their participation is in, uh, actually occurs. Yeah, and one point I have about this is older people. I yeah. think because um, I did yeah. note in the research streams and I, you know, there, there is a focus in the trans and gender diverse research around children, adolescents and young people, mm-hmm. which is definitely needed. But we need to think of that, the backlog of people who uh, who have never had research done on them mm. or, or on what transition means. For example, at Switchboard, we run an out and about program where we, where we visit older people in aged care 
and some of the people we're visiting are transitioning, older trans women transitioning for the first mm, time yeah. in residential aged care. We cannot forget, you know, That's the right. age groups as well as the other demographics. Yeah. And actually, it, it's a really nice point, Joe. I visit an aged care facility where we have um, not a huge number, but we do have people who are known to be gay or trans, mm. and they're celebrated within that particular mm. facility. Um, but I imagine there are a lot of facilities where they're just not given a voice of any kind. Totally, and some of the issues... We need to reconcile also ageing with HIV. Um, like, HIV is a driver of dementia. Again, that's not talked about very much. What does it mean for a generation of people who didn't have access to or had late access to things like PrEP? You know, and um, so we do have people living with HIV and ageing with HIV, and we need to... Yeah, we always need to be thinking across all cohorts, all age cohorts and, you know, all... Uh, you know, not just looking at the alphabet, but mm. looking at the broadness of our community. That's right. And recognising some of the sy systemic biases, which we were talking about earlier <laughs> on here, where I suspect, yes, aged people, you know, aren't going to be a focus of research because it's like, well, you know, their life expectancy is relatively short. So what's the, you know, the cost-benefit mm. analysis here? And, where, and we are going to have to wrap up pretty shortly, I'm afraid. Yeah, so there's, um, one thing I thought might be very important is to read some telephone numbers if people listening to this show. Um, need to get in touch with anyone, so... We've got a great number. Yeah, people can call QLife from 3pm today. So QLife is a national helpline that opens um, seven days a week from 3pm to midnight, and you can call that on one eight hundred one eight four. 527. We also have a range of ways. You can, you can call the Rainbow Door, which is a Victorian switchboard service, and you can, um, you can text in, you can email in, and you can call in, and that's on rainbowdoor.org.au. And Rainbow, Rainbow Door's telephone number is 1-800-729-367. And uh, just in case this is relevant for anyone listening who's been upset by what they're hearing or disturbed in any way and they need immediate help, Lifeline is 131114. Um, Joe, thank you so much for coming in. Uh, this is such an important topic. We could talk about this really for the entire show. We'll definitely have you back another time. But thank you very much for your time today. Thank you. It's been yeah, a pleasure. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. Um, so it's time for us to wrap up on Radiotherapy here. Time to say a huge thank you to our wonderful studio guest, Joe Ball, CEO of Switchboard. Joe, thank you so much for being with us. And also our virtual guest from the WHO, the World Health Organization, Kimberly Parker. Parker. <laughs> thank you to the multi-talented Dr. Nick T. Misdiagnosis, Prudence Dear and Dr. Band, and also Dr. Sonia, who I'm delighted to say will be back with us for our next show. I've been Dr. Nick. Thank you for listening. Remember, you can check us out on Facebook. You can listen anytime with Triple R Radio On Demand. You can always download the podcast. Hi, this is Panel Beater. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radio Therapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Therapy's Facebook page.